This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. You heard the intro and you're still here. So on that note, what's up, winners? Welcome to the Moranalytics podcast. The calendar is flipped. Today is Monday, April 2nd. Hope you all had a great Easter weekend, and I hope you didn't get fooled by any stupid-ass April Fool's jokes. If you're in Buffalo, or if you celebrate it in other cities, because I guess a few others do, I'm sure you're really pumped for Dingus Day today. If you are, have fun out there living it up. Me? Meh. I never got into Dingus Day, and I don't mean any offense to all my buddies out there celebrating. I love celebrating all cultures, but I don't know, man. I just feel like Dingus Day ain't for me. Back in the day, I was a bartender, and I tried one year. I tried working a big Dingus Day party. So I'm behind the bar, and within a couple minutes, someone's hitting me with a pussy willow, and then a few minutes later, someone else scored me with a water gun. And I was like, fuck this, man. I'm out. So my Dingus Day bartending career... It lasted about 23 minutes. Seriously. Anyway, most people who love Dingus Day are out there digusing it up. I think digusing is a word. They're out there, they're pumped up, and they're creating great memories. So if you're Polish or you want to be Polish for a day, live that shit up, man. Live it up. Happy Dingus Day. Get pumped up. Speaking of being pumped up, I'm Really excited for this episode today. If you're a Buffalo Bills fan, you know what? Who cares? It doesn't matter if you're a Bills fan. Scratch that shit. It doesn't even matter. If you're a football fan and you're a draft fan and you want to know about this draft class, particularly the quarterbacks, I got Greg Gabriel on the show today. And I'm telling you right now, he's going to drop a straight up education on your ass when it comes to these quarterbacks. With credibility comes believability. And there's few people in football that are more credible than Greg Gabriel. The guy spent 30 years in NFL scouting. So he knows what he's talking about. And I will take the insights of him over guys like Mel Kuyper, Todd McShay, and so forth any day of the week, any day. You know, I have a buddy who's constantly telling me, he says, oh, why don't you have Mel Kuyper or Tom McShay come on your podcast? Well, first of all, they're not coming on this podcast. 
I'm pretty confident if I ask Mel Kuyper, Tom McShay, or Mike Mayock, one of those guys to come on my podcast, they're going to be like, dude, I don't even know who the fuck you are. And secondly, I want guys like Greg Gabriel on my podcast. Somebody who knows what they're talking about. Someone who has done it for decades. He's going to break down quarterbacks and players for you, unlike those other guys can. Mock drafts are fun. I love mock drafts as much as the next guy. But you know what? They don't mean shit. Greg tells us that. I interview Greg, he tells me that. Mock drafts mean nothing. These guys don't know what they're talking about. They're taking educated guesses because that's all it is at the end of the day. An educated guess. How does a GM know what quarterback he wants when he admits that he hasn't spent more than 15 minutes with the guy? Be better than that. Holy shit, I kind of went off the rails with that mock draft rant. My bad. Take it easy, Patrick. You've got to acclimate. I'll take it easy when I'm dead. Greg breaks down and he ranks these quarterbacks, a class he considers widely overrated, by the way. If you're a Josh Allen fan, eh, you ain't going to like this interview very much. I'm warning you. But if you're a Baker Mayfield guy or Mason Rudolph guy, you're definitely going to enjoy this. Greg also talks about two non-quarterbacks that he thinks would be a tremendous fit for the Buffalo Bills. We discuss a bunch of other things. Actually, you know what? No, we don't. We don't talk about a bunch of other things, man. I talked to Greg for 40 minutes and more than 30 minutes of that was about quarterbacks. Just keeping things real on the show. Let's not waste any more time. Here's my interview with Greg Gabriel, followed by our weekly Pat with Pucks segment with my boy, Tone Pucks. My guest today was a 30-year NFL scouting veteran. He's also a Western New York native, having went to high school in Williamsville and was a football star at Canisius College back when Canisius had a college football program. These days, he still keeps busy writing for Pro Football Weekly while doing analyst work for 670 The Score Radio and also does work with Buffalo Sports Page with Kevin Sylvester, Paul Peck, and some of those guys. I'm talking about Greg Gabriel. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Greg. Hey, you really do keep yourself busy. Well, you got to. I mean, you know, when you're involved in football as long as I've been, it's a, uh, I guess the best way to describe the the NFL is that it's a, um, you know, it's a grinding type uh, atmosphere. And so if, if you're not, if you don't like work and if you don't, aren't used to doing a lot of work, then it's just, you know, you're not in the wrong uh, spot. Everyone wants to hear about the Buffalo Bills and NFL draft talk. We'll get into that in a few minutes. But before that, tell us a little bit about growing up in Western New York, because that is where you're from. Yeah, I lived in uh, the Buffalo area until I came to Chicago 17 years ago. So the whole time I worked for the Giants, I was, you know, living in the Western New York area. My kids are still there. I, I enjoyed growing up. I I went to Christ the King School in Snyder. Uh, then I was at Canisius High School for a year and then transferred to Bishop Newman, which no longer exists, and uh, just had a uh, nice situation growing up. Uh, you know, I went to college at Canisius. first went to school uh, in the Boston area for a couple of years, and I transferred back to Canisius, finished up my degree at Canisius. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's typical 
kid growing up in western New York. I mean, nothing special. What was your initial ambition to get into scouting? Um, you know, I don't think initially I had an ambition because it, uh, you know, at that time, scouting wasn't as big as it is now. Uh, you know, I, I happened into it. And when I was playing uh, for a semi-pro team in the Buffalo area, it was called the Twin City Geminis, if you remember that. Uh, the coach was a man by the name of Gene Zinni, who at one time was the head coach at North Tonawanda. He coached under Joe Shiflett uh, at Sweet Home for a long time. Then he was a head coach at North Tonawanda, and then he was coach at Buffalo State. He was the line coach at Buffalo State up until two years ago when he died. And uh, real good coach, but he had a side job with the Bills. And this goes back to when Chuck Knox was the head coach, Norm Pollan was the director of player personnel. And at that time, they the Bills were in a scouting combine called Quadra, and it was Buffalo, Seattle, San Francisco, and Dallas. And then the other two combines in the league were National Scouting and Blesto. So every all the teams in the league, and at that time there's 28 teams, uh, all the teams in the league were a member of one of those combines, and the Quadra was just four teams that I mentioned. But as uh, what that combine did, and, and Gil Brandt was uh, the forefather of this and the guy who came up with the idea, they supplemented what their scouts did with film evaluation from, and, and they would have the film evaluation done by local, each team's uh, local people from each team. So Buffalo hired, uh, you know, some local high school coaches to do the film evaluation. And one of the guys they had was this Gene Zinni. And, and that's how I actually got involved. I said, I can do that. And um, Gene introduced me to Norm Pollum, who then actually became my mentor. Uh, that was in 1981, late 1980. And I started actually working for the Bills, part, <clears throat> excuse me, part-time in 1981, and then Norm, right after the 1984 draft, uh, the Bills had no room to bring in another guy full-time, but he got me a job with national scouting as the area scout, and I ended up uh, being the Great Lakes area scout. I had um, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, western Pennsylvania, western New York. Now, you would eventually... You'd spent nine years as a scouting director at the Chicago Bears. Before that, you spent 16 years in the Giants uh, scouting department. They talked about working well, for the years I was there. Wow. And you talked about working for the Bills very early in your career. That's how you got your start. What was that experience like, you know, cutting your teeth in the NFL during that time? Well, you're talking Buffalo's team? Yeah, Buffalo. Well, I, I left Buffalo right after the 1984 draft mm -hmm. and... So, and then I was, I was with national scouting for the 84 season and then went to uh, the giants at the, the um, combine has their, had their meetings, their fall meetings in December, first week of December. And at that time they were held uh, national scoutings right in Indianapolis now, but at that time it, it was, um, their offices were in Tulsa. So we were in Tulsa that first week in December, uh, for the fall meetings, and actually the Giants offered me a job right there at those meetings, so I went to work for them right away. But, um, you know, it, uh, for the Buffalo teams, 
you know, you, I learned a little from Chuck Knox, but I wasn't around him that much. It was more from Norm. Uh, Bruce Nicholas was his assistant. And, uh, you know, they had a pretty good scouting staff, a very veteran uh, scouting staff. And, and you learn from these guys, especially when they came in town for meetings. Because, like, I, I was, you know, my travel was at that time was very, very little. I'd go to some local games. And when I say local, Colgate, Syracuse. Uh, those types of things, as well as, as uh, you know, UB was just playing uh, Division three football at the time, but um, and then doing all the tape work, and I, you know, they provided this. And back then, there was no, you know, nothing was digitized and nothing was on videotape. It was all on the old Kodak 16 millimeter film. And if you want to know how tough it is to watch film, watch it under those conditions because it's so much different than it is right now. But uh, very time-consuming, and the tape always or the the film always broke, so you had to know how to splice film, and um, you know it just took up a lot of time that you know was wasted time really, as compared to how easy it is right now to to look at things. But um, you know, really, I was just learning. And actually, when I went to the Giants, that's when I was say, brought up in the game. Bill Parcells was the head coach. George Young was one of the great all-time general managers, was the GM. And that was an education itself, just uh, being able to work for George and work with Bill. Let's fast forward now to this year's uh, draft. If these mock drafts out there, if they prove to be even remotely accurate, the Bills don't have any chance of standing pat at 12 and grabbing one of these perceived big four quarterbacks. Do you think, and I know there's still more time, but do you think as of right now that you could see the Bills ended up moving into that maybe four to six range, which is what it might take? If you're to believe these mock drafts out there, do you think that they can move into that four to six range and get one of these four quarterbacks? Well, number one, they're called mock drafts because they're a mock. I mean, you know, Very there's, true. there's no semblance to reality at all in those things. And they're, they're great clickbait for fans. Sure. And the topic brings up topics of conversation, but is it real? No. And regardless of what you hear and people say, you know, somebody told me this and according to the source that, 99% of that is all fabricated lies. And, you know, having spent as much time in the league as I did, I know that, and I know they can sound arrogant or obnoxious, but, you know, I just listen to some of these people who come up with some of this stuff, and it's just so far away from, from what really happens and what it's really like. And they have no idea what it's really like because I've never seen the inside of a draft room. But that's another story. But, you know, yeah, I mean, obviously Buffalo is looking for a quarterback, but to get one, to get one of the top four, now let me back up a little bit here. I'm not one who thinks this quarterback class is very good. I think it's overrated, vastly overrated. I don't think any of the so-called top four this year are anywhere close to being as good as the top three last year. And the funny thing is, is last year, the draft analysts were saying the quarterback class sucks and maybe two will go in the first round and none will go until the second half of the first round. And that was right up until the day before the draft and three went in the top 12. So, you know, what they think and what is real and what the league thinks and only what the league thinks is important, uh, you know, are entirely different things. But, you know, you look at the stats 
uh, how they play. I, I think this class is very overrated as compared to last year, but there's teams that are drafting in that high area that have to have one, and it's a quarterback-driven league. And if you don't have one, you got to find a way to get one. And we've been through free agency. We saw how that went. Uh, a lot of guys who can't play got paid a lot of money. And now it's you got to take your chances in the draft, and you're hoping that it turns out good. But reality is half of these half of these four that go – end up probably going in the top six, seven, eight, whatever, will end up being bust. That's just the the mathematics and the analytics of it once they get into the National Football League. I have said I kind of compare this class to the 2011 class where I think four went in the top 13 or 14, and only one, and that was Cam Newton, turned out to be an NFL quarterback. All the other guys busted. There's only one left in the league from the others, and that's Blaine Gabbard, and he's a backup. And, you know, he, he got people fired at Jacksonville. They took him as, I think, number six or number seven or whatever it was. And, you know, I, I see the same thing happening this year with some of these guys. I just don't think they're as talented as the people are making them out to be. They've got a lot of flaws in their games. I think if they get in the right situation with the right coaches, they've got a chance to be decent quarterbacks. But there's ifs involved, and it's going to take some developmental time, I think, with all of them. Um, that being said, Buffalo, you know, Buffalo may have their eye on, from what I understand, there's, there's one particular quarterback they like. I have no idea who that is. But if they got a chance to get that guy, they'll go up and try to get him. My personal feeling is, and, and experience will, will um, agree with this, is that they can sit where they are at 12 and and take a quarterback there or take a quarterback at 22 with their other one of the guys that left. The chances of hitting are just as good as these guys using top five, top six picks on, on a quarterback. The problem you have when you take a quarterback in, in that top eight area, top six area, if he fails, you're fired. End of discussion because it happens all the time. I, I remember going back to when uh, – uh, the Jacksonville quarterback, Blake Bortles, was drafted. And I said about two weeks before the draft, I said, if somebody takes him in the top five, they're going to be gone within three years. He's gone through three. He's played four years in the league now. He's gone through three offensive coordinators, two head coaches, and the GM's been demoted. Wow. You know, I'm All glad- because he was the – I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I- I'm really glad that you said this because one thing that really caught my attention with you on Twitter – is when these first mocks, they were first coming out, you made an awesome point. You said something to the effect of how are you making mock drafts and talking about sources and being confident in what's going to happen when Brandon Bean admitted that he's only spent about, at the time anyway, like maybe 15 minutes with each quarterback, which is something you would know. Yeah, at that position, especially in, in... In today's game, and, and when I say that because of, of the, the vast difference between the college game and the NFL game, you've got to spend an inordinate amount of time with that player. And 15 minutes of the combine isn't going to get anything done. 
And a lot of that is, hi, my name is Joe. What's your name? And getting to know you. And, you know, as far as getting deep into his background, his personality, his intelligence, what are you going to find out in 15 minutes? I mean, you and I have been on the in this conversation for longer than 15 minutes. And, you know, how far have we gone? We're not even close to being done. So you've got to have in a pro day with a quarterback in the last eight, nine years has turned out to be a circus. They're ridiculous. But the coaches from the NFL don't run the pro day with a quarterback's pro day. His quarterback route does. The guy who's been coaching him since he, uh, you know, say since the middle of January or since his college season got over with and, and training him for the combine, et cetera, he sets up the workout. Everything's scripted. There's 60 to 70 throws, maybe 55 throws. Um, they're designed to make the, the player look good. They're designed to show his strengths and to hide his weaknesses. Um, everything has been practiced and rehearsed for weeks leading up to that particular day. Right. And the coaches in the NFL, the quarterback coaches, offensive coordinators, head coaches, they're sitting on the sidelines watching and they have, they're not taking part in this particular exercise at all. So now Fast forward and you set up, okay, I want to take a quarterback and I got to get to know this guy. Now you set up a pro day or not a pro day, a a private workout. Now that time you're spending with that player could be anywhere from four to eight hours. I usually say four to six hours, but if you figure in a meal and there usually is, you know, it could be four to eight hours before you're done. could be a meal the night before. And the next day you're meeting at eight o'clock in the morning at the football offices. You go down into one of the meeting rooms, you're, you're watching tape. Um, you're having the player explain things in his offense, why he did certain things. You're trying to get his total understanding of the game. And part of the reason you, want to know this or you have to know this is because of the differences in the college game and the pro game and how elementary a lot of these college spread offenses are as compared to a sophisticated NFL offense. So uh, you go back and, and one player I could mention, you know, when you watched his tape and you looked at his physical skills, Paxton Lynch looked like he was going to be a pretty good player. Mm-hmm. Except when you got him on the board, he didn't know anything about football. And it's not that he's not an intelligent kid. It's the offense he was brought up in high school and college and what he was asked to do and what he was taught. His overall knowledge of, of the the offensive part of the game is, is um, say, when you're talking NFL type of offense, he had no clue. And he struggled with that, learning that in the two years he's been in the NFL. Now, will he improve? Hopefully he will, but it just takes that much longer to get him over the hump because of his background. And so that's why you got to spend this time with these guys. You got to know what, you know, what kind of offense were they playing in college? What was the terminology? What's he being asked to do? Is it a full field offense, a half field offense? What are his reads are? A lot of these guys only had two reads. It's, you know, receiver number one, receiver number two, they're both to the same side of the field and that's it, you know, and then he runs or whatever. And so, uh, where you get into the NFL, it's a full field read. You've got uh, three or four different options to go to. You got to look at both sides of the field. Sometimes you you know you're starting on the right, then you go to the left, and then you come back to the right. You know all sorts of different variations that they never had to do 
in college, and I'm trying to simplify this for the you know for the purpose of this conversation. But once you get through all that part and you got an idea of what's going on uh, in this guy's head, then you you know you try to install some of your own stuff, see how fast he can pick that up. Then you you take everything you did in the classroom and you go out on the field, you do a workout. Now it's compared to the pro day workout where everything's been scripted and he knows what's coming and he's prepared for it. He has no idea what's coming when he goes out on the field with the pro coaches. And so now it becomes more of a reaction type situation and football's a reaction game and it's how quick you can react, how quick you can uh, process things. And so, you know, after you spend, you know, a half a day with, with one of these players, you've got a lot better idea about his personality, how he takes coaching, how the, the offensive coordinator, the quarterback coach, the head coach and the player, all can they get along together? Uh, you know, can everybody work with each other? You're going to come away from some of these workouts and say, you know what, I don't want this guy. And then there's going to be another guy that you're going to, you know, say, hey, I can't wait till the draft. I hope it's tomorrow. This is the guy I want. So until you go through that entire exercise with the guys that you – have slotted this guy, you know, as, as being interested in at that quarterback position, you can't make a decision. And in, in the case of the Bills or any other team that's uh, going through this process, it's probably still two weeks away. Right. Now, let me ask you this. I wouldn't, I'm not going to ask you who you would draft because you just laid out in full detail, you know, all the, the process that goes into selecting someone. So that would be unfair to ask you that. But let me ask you this question. Based on what you've seen, and I know you've called this quarterback class, for the most part, an overrated class, based on what you know, what you see, and what you feel, between these four quarterbacks, is there any one of the four to you that stands out with the knowledge that you have about them right now that you like them more than the other three? Well, without having made a school call on any of them, Baker Mayfield. Uh, I, I think the combination of talent, I don't like his size. And generally, I, you know, I, I, I downgrade quarterbacks that are six foot a half inch or under six feet. But in his case, he has proven throughout his college career, both at Texas Tech and at Oklahoma, that size is not a, a negative thing to him. He sees the field very well. He knows how to step up within the pocket. He can go through a progression. He's smart. He's instinctive. He processes quickly. So uh, he's accurate. He's got a strong arm. He can uh, make plays with his feet or extend plays with his feet. You know, I, I think he's got the entire package except ideal height. Uh, after that, I would I would go to Darnold. The problem, the guy is probably the best taught quarterback, but I worry about the intangibles is Josh Rosen. And when I say that in the NFL, the intangibles make up 50% or more of the player when I'm talking quarterback, not other positions. He's got to love the game. He's got to have a strong workout. He's got to be a leader. He's got to be able to accept and take coaching. Um, just the little things like that. He's got to have that real strong work ethic um, to be the best player that he wants to be. Because if he's not, his teammates are going to see right through him and know that he's not buying in the way he should be buying in. And those are some of the questions that you can't always get positive answers to with Josh Rosen. I've compared him, you know, we had a quarterback here, very similar to 
Jay Cutler. I think Jay Cutler actually had better physical traits, a stronger arm, but same type of personality. You know, a little bit hard to get along with. Jay's very smart. Rosen's very smart. And so, uh, but Jay was not a leader. Rosen's not a leader. And, you know, even his own coaches, the the other day it was funny, they're on the NFL Network and they hit um, Mora, his coach at UCLA, and they said, who would you take the first pick? And he said, the the USC kid, Darnold. Yeah, that was That's telling right there. That is. He didn't even say his own quarterback. You know, so, uh, you know, there's questions like that that say, is he going to succeed? You know, so, and, and, and until you spend a lot of time with them, you're not going to know the answer. Now, after you spend that time with them, then you can come back and say, you know what, we can work with this guy, and, and uh, I think he can be successful with what we're asking him to do and what we want to do in, in the situation here in Buffalo. But, you know, you're not going to know the answer to that until draft day when they actually pull the trigger on a player. Uh, the last guy I take of those top four is Josh Allen. To me, it, it's uh, Kyle Bowler all over again, or Blaine Gabbard all over again. The same same type of player. You got a big guy who's very athletic with a cannon arm, and it ends there. You know, and you look at his his accuracy uh, over the last two years at Wyoming. And number one, Wyoming's playing the Mountain West Conference. There is no defense in that conference, and he completed 56% of his passes over the last two years of his career. Well, he was only there two years. He was a junior college transfer. And no quarterback in the last 12 years has come into the National Football League with that low a completion percentage and never had success. Even if it was 59%, nobody's come in and had 59%, which is three points higher. And the offense he's playing in, he should have a 65 um percent completion rate or 64 say at minimum not 56 that tells you he's just not an accurate passer could it be footwork and stuff yeah can you fix some of that stuff absolutely but you watch the tape and the and the quarterbacks that are successful make extra time for themselves in the pocket they've got an innate feel for pass rushers they know when to step up and let the pass rushers go uh, you know, step up in the pa- pocket and let the line push the offensive line, push the pass rushers by him, and then make the throw. Josh Allen doesn't do that. When there's pressure coming in, he retreats, rolls out, and then makes a bad throw. And he does it on a consistent basis. You know, we, we heard the same thing. This goes back, I think, 2003 draft when, when Bowler was coming out of Cal. He was a guy that, could, you know, kneel down on one knee and throw the ball 75 yards uh, on a rope. And everybody's like, wow, he's going to be a great quarterback. He was no leadership at all, no accuracy at all. And and the funny thing is, is when, when he was at Cal and Jeff Tedford was the head coach for his final year, he was a 53% passer before Tedford came in. Tedford got him from 53 to 59 for his final year in college. You know the quarterback who replaced him was? Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers threw 70% in that same offense. So that tells you a little bit you know, about the player. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have strong thoughts on either Lamar Jackson or Mason Rudolph? Cause that's the next tier that if the bills don't move up or they don't get one of these guys, whether it's 12 or maybe 22, do you have thoughts on, on Lamar or Mason Rudolph? I, I take Mason Rudolph and I, you know, I, if it's me and I'm in that room, I'm, I don't want to move up. I'm staying at 12. Uh, and then I'm, I'm hoping that, that Rudolph 
falls to me at 12. Now, here's the, the problem you got is you've got even you got the four teams in front of the Bills who have a quarterback need. And then you also got Miami, who I think is about 11 or, or 13 or something. Yeah, they're right I don't have the order right in they're, front of me. Right and then you've got, yeah, they've got a need. How big that remains to be seen because uh, Tannehill's still uh, fairly young. And then you've got Arizona, and they're at 15. So, you know, you could say, okay, we got to get from 12 to 8 to take the – even if the uh, the other four are gone, to, to maybe get a Mason Rudolph. Is that a little bit rich for him? Yeah, it pro- probably is. But, you know, I wrote in Buffalo Sports page, I think it was last week, I said, Bills may be better off taking him than these other guys. I think he's got – he doesn't have the arm talent that, that a Josh Allen has – lot smarter player and a great leader. And he was during the, the course of the year for the early part of the year, probably the first two thirds of the year, he was over 70% completion percentage. And even though he was in a spread offense, he was making full field reads and going through three and sometimes four receiver progressions, stuff that he's going to have to do in the national football league. Now, I'm not saying he had a real complex offense, but he was, he had more to do at his position than some of these other guys. And on top of that, the intangibles, the intangibles for him are off the charts. Strong leader, great kid, smart, great, you know, wants to be a great player. You know, everything that you want the quarterback to be, he has. He doesn't have the physical traits of some of these other guys. And you make great points, too, about it's not just the teams that are in front of you. It's the teams that are behind you that might be looking for a quarterback. You mentioned Arizona. You also could see teams like Pittsburgh and New Orleans try to move up. They want to get a successor to their guy, you know, who's long, getting long in the tooth now. So you feel, I feel like uh, someone like Mason Rudolph, especially, you know, based on what you said, if they like him, they probably ain't waiting the 22 to get him. They better get him at 12, or maybe they move up from 22 after making another pick at 12. But it doesn't sound like Mason Rudolph will be there if you want to wait it out to 22. He might not be there at 12. You might have to go from 12 to 10 to get him or something just to, to make sure. And, that, and that's what that, that's the problem with drafting quarterbacks right now is that you, you overreact and to make sure you get one, you've got to make a move like that to do it. But the cost to move up a few spots from 12 is a lot less than the cost to go from 12 to two or from 12 to four. And when you use the, you know, the point chart as the guide and you can throw the point chart basically out of the window to try to get into the top five this year, because the jets already screwed that up for everybody else, (laughs) giving away three seconds to go from six to three way overpaid, but that's where they felt they had to go to be able to secure a spot to get one of the quarterbacks they wanted. So you, you paid a premium. But because of that, the market's been set for this year, at least to get a quarterback. So now, you know, for, for Buffalo to get to two, they got to pay a ransom. Even to get to four, if Cleveland wanted to trade out of four, they'd have to get a ransom. Now, part of one of the reasons, you know, because I know that the, the number three spot that Indianapolis had, a lot of people on paper were saying, well, that'd be a great spot for, for the Bills to get to to get a quarterback. Well, you know, you talk to the people from Indianapolis, they didn't want to go back as far as, as 12 because the drop-off in talent for the non-quarterbacks is too great. You know, they want to, at six, they're going to get one of the top guys they want, non-quarterback guys. At 12, different story. So if, if, if Buffalo wanted to trade with Indianapolis again, you got to pay a real lot for them to drop down 
from 6 to 12 because of what they're giving up or what they're potentially giving up by staying, excuse me, by staying at 6. Now, as evidenced by our conversation here today, it just and especially in Buffalo, the draft has been absolutely dominated with quarterback talk. Give me a couple guys that are not quarterbacks. If the Bills end up staying at 12 and the draft doesn't fall their way with quarterback and they feel comfortable for now with A.J. McCarron, and we'll talk about him in a minute, who are a couple guys that you could see at 12 or maybe 22 that you really like that the Bills would be really better off drafting that are not quarterbacks? You look at, at one of the neat, what they haven't taken care of in free agency uh, they lost their middle linebacker in free agency, and I don't think they cared if they lost him because he's not not a fit for what Sean McDermott wants right. at that position. You go back to Carolina, those linebackers were a little bit undersized, very, very athletic, very, very fast. And the player right off the bat that jumps out, and to me he's Luke Cookley Jr., Keekley Jr., as far as coming out of college, is Roquan Smith from Georgia. A little bit smaller, but he's faster. Uh, has that same instinctive trait where he just anticipates so well and that he is the ideal middle linebacker in the Bills' defense. And, you know, there's a chance he might not be there at 12 uh, because there's other people that were saying what I have. You know, other people will say, well, what about Tremaine Edmonds? To me, Tremaine Edmonds is a 3-4 inside backer with an outside backer body. He doesn't have the, I like him, I don't love him, I'll take Smith over him every day of the week. Um, <clears throat> Edmonds has those freakish physical traits, but he's not a real instinctive guy. He's more of a reactor and instead of an anticipator. And I guess if you understand those, what I mean by that is he sees it and then reacts where Roquan Smith or Luke Hookley, they anticipate it before it happens. And either by formation, by, by the way motion's going or whatever, or, or the initial reaction to the snap rather than seeing it and, and taking an extra second to figure out what's going on. And that's the difference in the instinctive um, trait of uh, uh, Edmonds versus a uh, Smith, who's just got rare instincts. And then if you drop down to the next linebacker, and, and again, I know uh, Sean mentioned it at the owners' meeting, it's a position he's got to take care of, and that is Leighton Vander Esch from Boise, who body-wise is actually more similar to to Keekley, and he he's a guy that you may get at 22, or maybe you got to move up a little bit from 22 to make sure you get him. Maybe you got to get to 18 or something like that. But I think he's going to be a real good middle linebacker, or in, he can play he's scheme versatile. He can play inside backer in a three-four middle backer in, in the uh, Bills type scheme and be a very good player at either. What I my favorite thing about this draft from a Bills perspective is. All the talk, again, it's about quarterback, but, and you just laid it out, man. You, you can make a very significantly reasonable case that they need that middle linebacker as much, maybe even more, at least for now, than they need a quarterback. Well, I, I, again, you, you look at who the head coach is and what's his background. He's a defensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. And so where, where is he going to be leaning and what's, and what did he have 
when he had a great defense in, in Carolina, the defense that actually got him a head coaching job. So, you know, you try to put those little pieces together and that's what you come up with. What's your favorite thing about this draft class? What's the strongest part of it and what's the weakest part of it? I think the running back position is probably the strongest. The, the depth at the position is, is outstanding. Um, I think overall it's not a great draft, you know, average draft. Up top, it's not as strong as other years. <clears throat> In other words, I don't think – and really the, the, the jostling to get the quarterbacks it is really the proof in that. There's there's no player to me the best player in the in the, in the draft is Chubb from from North Carolina State the defensive uh, end and but you got these teams that have the strong need for quarterbacks so they're gonna you know go all out to get these quarterbacks but really Chubb might not be the first player in in a, in a lot of drafts he'd be a top three top four player but not a head and shoulders above everybody else type player and there isn't that type of player in this draft. There's a bunch of good players. There's not great players. Um, my second player, and, and from what I understand, talked to some people yesterday, he might not go until the uh, teens because his testing wasn't quite as good as they had anticipated, is uh, Minka Fitzpatrick, the safety corner from Alabama. Great football player. And I think if you compare his tape with – uh, Ramsey, Jalen Ramsey's tape at Florida State, both in their final years of college, that Fitzpatrick had better tape than Jalen Ramsey. Fitzpatrick doesn't have the physical traits. He's not as fast. He's not as explosive as um, Jalen Ramsey, but he's a better player in college. Last, uh, last Bill's question here. Let's just say for the sake of discussion, and I'm sure it'll be much of the dismay of the majority of Bills fans, but let's say that they don't get a quarterback early in this draft at all, or they do, and the guy's just not going to be ready to play as a rookie, which is very, very realistic. How do you feel about A.J. McCarron as the 2018 Bills starting quarterback? Number one, I'm I'm a McCarron fan, and I have been since he was at Alabama. I uh, played in pro-style offense. He's smart. He's won two national championships. Granted, he had great supporting cast around him, but he did it. Uh, for whatever reason, he slipped in the draft. Again, I didn't make a school call. I know his agent. I know his agent well. In fact, his agent is a native Western New Yorker and played football at UB. Uh, I, I think he's going to be, of all the free agent signings, a quarterback is going to be the surprise player because he's going to get that opportunity to play. Even if they draft a guy, he, he's going to be the player. You know, he's not going to be like a Mike Lennon here in Chicago last year who just couldn't play. You know, I think McCarron has got a chance to be a winning quarterback. He's not, he's not going to the type of guy that's going to, you know, get you to a Super Bowl, but he's better than Tyrod Taylor, and he can do more than Tyrod Taylor can. And so given that same team, you know, the, there should be they should be improved just because he's the guy under center instead of Tyrod Taylor. Do you think the Giants are going to end up trading Odell Beckham? No. Uh, I, you know, I think, um, you know, the, and I, being I worked there for a long time, so I know these people. I know Dave Gettleman real well. I've known Dave. Dave actually started his career in Buffalo. Right. He lived in Hamburg, and uh, he was uh, hired by Bill Polian. Uh, I've known Dave since he came in the league. I've known John Mara, since I started working for the Giants in December of 1984, 
Um, if you listen to that whole interview where John said, you know, everybody's tradable, I remember the exact same words, but if you listen to the whole thing, he, he doesn't want to get rid of them. He's the best player they got. And when he was on the field, Eli Manning was playing his best football. There's a drop-off in Eli Manning's play when Odell Beckham isn't there. Now, if somebody makes you an offer that you can't refuse, say they offer him two number ones, well, hell, I, I might take two number ones because it's just too, it is too good to get it. But I think it's got to be some sort of knockout type transaction for them to even think about uh, making the trade. But, you know, Dave showed that when he was in uh, Carolina as the GM, that he's not afraid move that might not uh, make the public that happy, but he thinks is in the best interest of the club. You mentioned a relationship with Gettleman. He obviously, he has a relationship with Brandon Bean. I got to backtrack a little bit here after you said that. It got me thinking here. The, the, the talk has been, at least since Indy moved back, that the Bills, if they were to move up, you may as well move all the way up to two. And again, part of that's based on their relationship with Gettleman and Bean. Do you think the Giants are willing to move down that far? Or do you see them staying pat and taking either a quarterback or Chubb? Um, or they could take Barkley, too. Or Barkley, yes. Uh, no, and I'll tell you why. I, I, I guess if, if the trade offer is a huge premium to what the points say. And the, and the points are, are a guide. They're, they're, they're not an exact. And we saw that with the, the Jets Colts trade, but they'd have to pay it. And I don't have a chart in front of me, so I, I can't give you the exact numbers, but they'd have to give up a real lot for the giants to be interested. And then when you look at what's in the best interest of the bills, because they've got, three or six picks in the first three rounds Mm -hmm. and what they can do with those picks versus giving them all away to get one player that may or may not end up being the franchise quarterback. Uh, I just think, you know, from the bills perspective, it's a little too risky from the giants perspective perspective. I'll go back to um, what I said a little while ago, and that is the drop off in player that you're going to get at two versus 12. All right. I'm going to, as we wind down this interview, I like to have every week when I have a guest on a little mini lightning round, I'll ask you something random, not really so much about football anymore. Just give me a quick first answer that pops into your mind. Okay. Start. Yep. I'm going to start favorite football player you've ever seen. Bo Jackson, Lawrence Taylor, and Bo Jackson. What's the first profession as a kid? You know, we're all kids. We say, I want to grow up. I want to be this. When you were a little kid, what's the first thing you can remember wanting to be? Football player. Favorite movie? Don't have one. I'm not a big, I'm not a big movie guy. Okay. Favorite TV show? Uh, blind, not blind spot, uh, blacklist. Okay. Favorite type of music? Blues, classic rock. What's your biggest pet peeve? Uh, biggest pet peeve are guys trying to think they they know what they're talking about and they have no clue. AKA mock drafters, right? <laughs> well, draft analysts who have all the answers that don't have a clue. Right. Uh, what's your favorite non-sports hobby? Playing guitar. Okay. Last question. You could have three dinner guests, dead or alive. 
Who are they? I've already had 10 of them. Of them. George Young, Bill Parcells, Bill Walsh. Listen, Greg, I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy, especially this time of year. So I really appreciate you coming on and joining the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Pat with us. To the victor belongs the spoils. Why don't you get the fuck out of here before I shove your quotations book up your fat fucking ass? The customer is usually a moron and an asshole. Okay, a simple wrong would have done just fine, but then... What's up, dude? How was your Easter weekend? It was good, man. Uh, you know, lately the holidays have gone well. Uh, you know, OSB has been fostering a little one now for for a few months, and, and little ones bring a lot of joy. So, um, you know, everything's pretty cool. I'm not the most Jesus-y guy around, so, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't really, uh, I know that's wrong to say, Um but, uh, you know, so I, I celebrate holidays in the complete, you know, wrong context of them. But, uh, you know, there was family involved. So so that's a good thing. How about down your way? You know what? It was fun. I, I have found finally for two years, I think, and I'm only speaking for myself. Actually, I think I'm speaking for most people. When you move to another part of the country, you long for home and you long to find things that, remind you of home. And this weekend was really good because Saturday night, my wife and I went out to a bar and she loves karaoke. And she's a great, you know that already. She sings. Yeah, she can sing. So we found a karaoke, we found a karaoke bar to go to. And for the first time in almost two years of living in Florida, we found a bar that felt like Buffalo. It was in Palmetto and it was a complete fucking dive bar. And I'm not trying to diss the bar at all because it was a great time, but it was a dive bar. It was older people, regulars, good time. It felt like home. It was the first place we've been to that legitimately felt like home because there's so many places out here, man, that are beautiful. And don't get me wrong. They're beautiful. They're gorgeous. Palm trees everywhere. Tiki torches right off the water. So many beautiful sights and all that is great, but it just doesn't feel right to us. So to find a place like we did last night in Palmetto, this little dump place that had karaoke, everyone's into it. It, it felt like we were back in, uh, in Chictawaga having a good time. So that was cool. Yeah. I, I saw some of the, uh, some of the low lights on social media. I think I liked the one of the, uh, panties on the ceiling and I'm not prone to liking shit of yours. I, I don't like to give you more likes than, uh, than you deserve, but, um, that one was that one was kind of interesting. Four women, and I'm I'm not talking young crazy college girls on spring break. So don't get that idea. Four, we'll generously say middle aged women who have seen their best days, literally took off their panties. And a guy who worked there, I don't know if he was a bouncer or whatever, he was sitting there with a fucking staple gun, stapling them on the ceiling. Four. Pairs of panties. Now I know you you hear that and you're like, holy, what the hell are you doing going to a place like that? But it was awesome. It was a good time. Everybody was friendly. I don't know, man. I loved it. It was it was one of the highlights of uh not just the weekend, but one of the highlights I've had down here in a really long time. I don't have a chance. I, I don't have a chance 
in hell of making this work on the podcast, even though I'd love to. But at some point when we're done, we have got to pick our four most likely Facebook friends slash former classmates to have their panties stapled to the top of of a bar. Because I'm ready to do it right now, man, because you know they don't listen. Uh, they they ain't listening. I'll, I'll, I agree with that. Well, I don't know, man. Let's uh, I'll think on that for a little bit. Let's talk about something that actually is a little more serious that people probably actually give a shit about. Let's talk about the Buffalo Bills because we spend so much time talking about the draft and quarterbacks and who they've added, and that's all for good reason. But you know one thing that we were really, not me and you, well, we were too, but everybody was wrong. I don't care if media, fans, everybody was wrong. And that is we overvalued Preston Brown and EJ Gaines in a huge way. We were talking, again, when I say we, I mean everybody. I kept reading EJ Gaines is going to get 9 to $10 million a year on the open market, a big contract. Preston Brown, 6 to $7 million on the open market. Four, five-year deals for each of these guys. We're talking 2019 comp picks and how that's going to play out. And then it turns out that each guy gets a one-year, $4 million contract. It shows me that the Bills did not have any real value on them, and they didn't care about having them back. And apparently the league didn't have much of a value either. What's your thoughts on uh, Preston Brown and EJ Gaines pretty much getting shit on the open market? Well, you know, being wrong about it and being surprised to me, are, are two different things. Yes, you know, I, I put me in the camp of um, of being wrong, thinking that they would get more. But after, you know, really dissecting it, uh, thinking about it, thinking just how surprised are you? I, I I don't think it's it's you know that big of a uh, of a showstopper uh, to see you know what they what they got, man. I mean, you know, in the case of Brown. Um, this is a guy who has, you know, not shown to be very good in coverage in years past. Um, he was a mess in Rex's system. We can find, we being, you know, people that have watched him over the course of, of his short career to this point, we can find a lot of the, the reasons as to why those things happened, you know, the turnover in DCs and stuff like that, but he hasn't really done that much. And he had this tackle stats this year. On a uh, on a team that you know that went to the playoffs, and I think we probably hyped that up a little more in terms of you know what these guys would fetch than the rest of the league did. And tackle tackle stats are clearly overrated. I mean, President Brown's living proof of that now. What's interesting, though, man. What's interesting in that regard is they tend to be overrated sometimes when they are you know protected by good defensive tackles and they're just getting, you know, a lot of freebies. Preston Brown was not uh, protected by very good defensive tackles. You know, he he had to work for a lot of those tackles and he can get lost in a pile and stuff like that. But, you know, he's got good size. He's, he's a pretty sound tackler. He just can't cover, you know? Um, and, and that's the way of the new, uh, the, the new linebackers in, in the NFL these days. And, you know, credit to him. He lost, you know, he lost weight. He got a little more agile this past year, but I don't think there's enough, you know, of a sample size of him 
in coverage, in those schemes, in the in the zone defenses that McDermott played to really, you know, to really warrant the big contract. And that's why he went for the one year. And I think the same could be said of Gaines. Here's a kid who uh thrived in uh in, in zone concepts. And this is a league that plays a lot of man. He's gonna have to go out and prove that uh that he can succeed, you know, in, in multiple defenses. And, you know, um yeah, both these guys and Jordan Matthews is still not even under contract, I don't think. So, you know, yeah, it's, it does doesn't bode well for uh for compensatory picks next year. Yeah, compensatory picks are out the window. I don't know, man. I Preston Brown, I, I agree about the coverage. He's not good in coverage, and you know what? I don't think he made any impact plays last year at all. I don't remember him making impact plays at all. He was just tack- he was he was the Paul. I've said this before. He was Paul Puzlesny five years ago, man. Just tackles on the field, and I think that the rest of the league saw it fit too because he's young, pretty well known around the league. Only getting a one year four million dollar contract. I don't get it. I'm I am I'm not surprised he didn't come back to Buffalo. I don't think the Bills wanted him. That's obvious. They could they could have had him two years, uh, nine million. He's probably back. Ditto for EJ Gaines. I'm not really surprised about Gaines because they did get Vontae Davis. But, man, I just, I thought that they were going to command a bigger payday around the league from somebody. I mean, again, it only takes one team. Nobody wanted to give either guy a multi-year contract. That's some serious overvaluing here. And a lot of these other corners, by the way, did get paid. He's one of the few guys that didn't get paid. Yeah, it, it was it was interesting, and it'll be interesting to see um, you know what uh, what happens when they're up again next year. I know you heard it earlier, my interview with Greg Gabriel. I know that you uh, you heard especially what he talked about the quarterbacks. He ranked them and how he thought of them. He really likes Baker Mayfield. He thinks Baker Mayfield's the best quarterback in this class. And conversely, he really doesn't like Josh Allen at all compared to him to Kyle Bowler. And I don't know, man, just listening to Greg Gabriel, it really has sort of changed my mind about what I want to see the Bills do with this draft pick at 12 or moving up from 12 because they're going to have to if they want one of those four for sure. What are your thoughts right now? Did anything he say or anything anyone said since we've last talked, has that changed your mind when you look at these quarterbacks and what you think the Bills might be thinking? Well, I, you know, Mayfield seems to be the, you know, the flavor of the week. And that kind of has been driven by some, you know, some radio talk. I don't know how I feel about that. I, I felt like for a while that the Bills would be cold on Mayfield. Now it seems like they're extremely hot on Mayfield. So I don't know what to think. I, I think it's just his turn in the, uh, in the gamut uh, of, of, you know, who the Bills are in love with uh, this time around. You know, as far as Greg's take on things, it was interesting to hear. I mean, look, he's a, you could, you could get that old school feel from him a little bit. And I I like that because, you know, a lot of who, you know, is, is on the airwaves these days have a much, you know, fresher kind of outlook on things. And they think that, you know, probably some of the way, you know, the old timers look at it is stale. The answer is probably somewhere in the middle. What I, what I did think was interesting though, and what I did, you know, catch on to when, when Greg was talking was 
Yes, he thinks the class is overrated, but he certainly understands why. The needs are so great, okay, especially at the top, and the kids from last year who were thought to be, you know, a weak class really excelled at, a, at an early rate with Watson, uh, especially before the injury and some of the skills that Mahomes showed uh, in, in preseason and the fact that the Chiefs are, are moving to him right now. So it's just those confluence of events that has this class, you know, as in the spotlight as it is right now. And he's probably right to think that it's it's not as good as people are making it out to be. But there are so many teams in need and these kids are are starting at such a quicker rate now, you know, certainly by year two, that this is this is probably gonna become the norm uh until a few guys start to bust because we're on a lot of success stories uh a high rate of hits lately okay Goff Wentz last year's class you just you're on a high rate of first round hits so because of that right now any first round you know skill set is is looked upon favorably because a a, a lot have uh, been successful in the last 2 years I don't think that Baker Mayfield's just a flavor of the week at this point. I really don't. I'm almost willing to bet at this point. And I know after uh, over this past week, because he has, his stock has risen big time. And now you see him going up in mock drafts. Um, I, I listened to some of WGR in Buffalo on Saturday, the show, and all the callers were talking about they want Baker Mayfield, which is great. I mean, I, I want Baker Mayfield if I'm a Bills fan, but I don't think the Bills are getting Baker Mayfield unless they go forget Denver at five. I don't think the Bills are getting Baker Mayfield at this point unless they go up to number two with the Giants. Because I'm telling you right now, everyone just assumes the Jets are taking Josh Allen because they signed McCown and they got Bridgewater so they could take two years with the guy with Josh Allen who's physically talented but, you know, terrible with accuracy and has a long way to go. Everyone assumes that the Jets are taking Josh Allen at three. I don't agree, man. I think Baker Mayfield's going three. I think the first three picks are going to be a quarterback because Darnold's going to Cleveland. I, I, I think you can wrap that one up at this point. And the Giants are going to flirt around taking Chubb or taking Barkley or trading down with that pick. But at the end of the day, how do you not take Josh Rosen just for his physical talents? When you got Eli Manning, Eli's what, 37 years old, whatever he is. I think the Jets are taking Baker Mayfield at three. So... I don't just think that he's the flavor of the week. I think Josh Allen's stock is going to drop. And I know Mel Kuyper still has him going. And it's to his credit, he's sticking to his guns. He's got Josh, Josh Allen going one. I don't see that shit happening. I don't, and I'm, here's the, the, this is where I'm trying to tie this into. If Josh Allen's the fourth quarterback, if he is, I, I don't want to go up and get him if I'm the Bills. I don't want him. I, I've arrived at that point. And that's the, probably the one thing from Greg's, well, there were several things, but from Greg's interview that really sold me the most, more than anything else, is I don't want Josh Allen after listening. There's just too many things about him that scream bust. So I'm not moving up and giving up a 2019 first rounder or all kinds of other shit for Josh Allen. I know you're not into studying the quarterbacks too much at this point. You're, you know, a little more reliant on listening to analysts and doing your own reading and, and watching some uh, YouTube clips and stuff like that, but. How are you feeling about the Bills going up maybe to five to get Josh Allen at this point? Oh, who's five? Denver. Um, 
Not yep, that they, Denver at not, five. Not that that really matters. I'd be fine with it. I just, I've, I've got a level of trust, and this means absolutely nothing because, like, I trusted Tim Murray unequivocally. So my level of trust, you know, <laughs> is is not not uh, not been good of late. But you know, I feel as though these guys um, are qualified to decide you know who the best fit is from every you know aspect of it possible from the fit with Daybowl the fit with the city if you care about that sort of thing if their guy okay if their second guy let's say after Darnold let's 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 say Darnold's number 1 on their board but they know it's Cleveland so they're not even bothering if their guy is there at 5 then I'm fine with them going and doing it. And if it's Josh Allen, so be it, man. Dude, 70-yard dimes at the Combine. You just don't see that, okay? You just don't see that. So if they think that they can harness that raw talent, then I'm I'm willing to uh I'm willing to take that gamble with them because I've never been more impressed by any new coach or administration in however many years I've been watching Buffalo sports. I've never been more impressed by anyone than McDermott and then Bean as well. If they do that, I'm going to trust it. There really isn't a move that's going to make me say, boy, you know, they blew it. They haven't blown really much as of yet. So uh, there's nothing that they could do on draft night, um, you know, that's going to have me feeling ill or talking ill about it. Well, I, listen, I trust them too. They did end a playoff drought. I'm not going to go flipping tables if they drop, if they uh, draft Josh Allen, but I, I don't want him. I, I just don't. Too risky for me. One last thing about the quarterbacks, and let's move on from football. Greg talked up, and this kind of shocked me. I mentioned Mason Rudolph. I thought maybe, you know, maybe the Bills go linebacker or another position at 12, and maybe they think about taking Mason Rudolph at 22 or maybe moving up a little bit from 22 to get Mason Rudolph. (laughs) Greg thinks that Mason Rudolph might not be on the fucking board at 12, let alone 22. That, That surprises me. Now you're talking, I mean, if that's even remotely accurate, Five quarterbacks potentially going in the first 12, 13 picks. That shit's crazy. Yeah, man. You know, I it definitely raised a brow when I heard it myself, but I believe it. You know, I I I, I like Mason Rudolph. He's got uh, a few years uh, of, you know, of experience. He, he's not, you know, he, he didn't just step onto the scene and have uh, a good senior year. Um, you know, he's got a good body of work shown some consistency and I think he's going to be a good NFL quarterback and um I'd sign up for for Mason Rudolph I would sign up for him at 12 and I know that I, I can't remember what I was listening to but I know I know Bean went to see him in person at least twice this year at least twice um cuz there there was they were talking just about the uh you know the the, the press box at uh at Oklahoma State and things like that and you know, who was sitting up there, who, you know, who he was kind of kicking it with, you know, to watch Rudolph. So, 
He certainly has done his due diligence on him. And I like to think that he's in play. And I like to, the thought of him being in play because I want to have a real fun Friday night of the draft as well as Thursday. And if they're still sitting there with, uh, you know, with four picks on Friday night, that'll be a lot of fun. Sure will. You know what? I want to squeeze in some Buffalo Sabres talk, which is shocking because I just don't like talking about the Sabres. I've made that well-known since episode one of this podcast. I'm so fed up with this team right now. But they did get me. They reeled me in because Casey Middlestat made his debut, a much-anticipated debut. I watched against Detroit. It was Thursday. I watched that game, and bam, the Sabres are out 2 nothing, just like that. And then they get fucking slapped like they always do in front of their home fans. So, you know, I said, you know what? See you next year. Not going to spend another second watching this team. And I did it. But Saturday night, they go into Nashville, the number one team in the NHL, and they hang seven goals on them. Eichel has five assists. Sam Reinhardt has a hat trick. Which, by the way, I saw this stat today when I was looking up some, uh, doing a little bit of research. Sam Reinhardt had five goals and 11 points through his first 38 games. And now over his last 40 games since January 1st, dude has 18 goals in 40 games. Now he's starting to look like a star. I guess what I'm asking you is, what what the hell is going on with this team? How are they this bad? And do you think, obviously Eichel and Reinhardt look like answers. Middlestad's going to be part of the solution going forward. Do they have even close to enough? Was this year just an anomaly? Are they going to be significantly improved going forward? Or is this just a really fucking terrible hockey team that's got maybe three or four good players? No matter how good or bad a team has been in this market, there is always a large faction of the fan base that will claim to have an answer. Okay, and they're usually full of shit. They usually don't have an answer at all. But they at least feel as though they know what that team needs to do. That you know, they they need to get a quarterback. They need to cut ties with with this guy. Um they need to tank. You know, everybody's got uh, got an opinion. Opinions are like assholes, whatever. There is nobody claiming to know what the right move is for this hockey franchise right now. So it's not going to start here. <laughs> you know, this is all on bottle. This is all about knowing what's going on behind closed doors because for years it's been said to be an absolute uh, uh, an absolute mess. And it has to be a mess. Why are they so bad? It's it's definitely a mess. Uh, well, you know they're they're bad because they they had a major disconnect with each other and with the uh, you know the the previous coach. They were just put. They were put together. I think it, you know. I mean, I talked about it on a, a couple shows ago about like the leadership that they had and the kids and how it just didn't. It, you know, it didn't gel. And I don't know that it's that it's fixed. Just on the exit of of Evander Kane, I think um, you know. I think a big piece or two are, are going to be moved. It wouldn't surprise me if it's O'Reilly. It wouldn't surprise me if it's Risto. It wouldn't surprise me if it's Reinhardt, who 
boy, he's he is filling up the stat sheet. That's the. And, let, and, let, I don't ahead. mean to take away. You no. can finish your point after, but this is kind of like a, well, what's left of me as a Sabres fan. It's like okay, the kids finally fucking play. And let me listen. I'm looking at the stat sheet, and I'm looking at Mike Harrington's tweets, and a couple other hockey guys talking to you about it a little bit. I have a complete uninformed opinion because I have openly admitted this. Have not watched the team. Have no interest in watching them anymore right now, to be honest with you. But here's my point. He's lighting up the fucking score sheet, just like Evander Kane did at one point. And I know they're two different things. Evander Kane had off-ice issues, and that's a big reason why he's gone. I get that much. But it's like, it just seems like that's the norm, the culture in Buffalo. Okay, a guy does good. So now he has trade value. There's got to be a point where who are they going to build this team around? I don't, again, I didn't mean to cut you off from the point that you were trying to make. I'm just trying to wrap my head around this team and figure out why they are as bad as they are. Is it the second half of the roster? Is it the top half's just not consistent enough? Is it Phil Housie as a head coach? Again, I don't know because I haven't watched enough hockey this year to know that, but something just is really wrong with this team. I don't think that this is a roster that should be 31st in the NHL right now. Didn't mean to cut you off. So nah, man, you're right. You're, you're right. It's ridiculous to be talking about trading a number two overall pick just as he's starting to come into his prime. I'm of the opinion though, that some of Sam Reinhardt's streaks are fool's gold. Now I'm not, <laughs> this is a terrible comparison to make, but you know, when you talk about you, you talk about the tackles of Preston Brown. You know, Sam Reinhardt gets a, a lot of points on the power play. He doesn't seem to impact games, uh, obviously, in the way that uh, that Eichel does. And you know, I mean, it's he just doesn't seem all that noticeable. But there he is on the score sheet. You know, at least in the second half of the of the season. I, I I guess I'm still taken by the Sam Reinhardt we saw in the first half of the season because I'm not like you that I've given up entirely, but I was dialed in for the first half and I've become a little detached for the second. So, you know, the in, in terms of watching it and, and really um, my memories of this Sabre season was how it was lost in the first half. And... Reinhardt was invisible, just invisible to the point where we started to talk about, you know, what they could even get from uh, for him, whether he was even going to worth a, a like a, a first on the market. And then he got hot for you. And I just don't want to be back in that same position next year or the year after where he's got 11 points you know, 40 games in and we're saying, man, we should have struck while the iron was hot, you know, at the end, uh, at the end of the 17th season. I think when, when, when Housley and, and everyone talks about, you, you hear it from, you know, you at least follow the guys on Twitter when they talk about guys that just don't seem to show up sometimes. Okay. For my money, Sam Reinhardt's at the top of that list. And if you don't think you can fix him enough, all right, that you're going to get not necessarily, you know, the second half of this year's stats over the course of, of, of 82 games, but you're not going to get the consistency necessary 
you know, to, um, you know, to build your team around and, and to point to him as, you know, part of the core, then take those points, take this hot streak and move on, man. Because I think his effort, um, has proven to be part of the problem at times, you know, at both years. Well, these past two. All right, before we get out of here, let's talk a little baseball. We're just a couple days in. I always love opening day, opening week. It's it's one of my favorite times of the year for baseball. And as luck would have it, my team, the Yankees, plays your team, the Toronto Blue Jays in Toronto to start the season. The Yankees go on, they kick their ass the first two games, and then Toronto goes back and wins the second two games, which, I mean, again, I'm a Yankees guy, and I thought the strength of the Yankees this year was their bullpen. I mean, it's got, it's still probably the strength of their bullpen. Not a good fucking start, though. Betances gets uh, crushed on Saturday, blows the game in the eighth inning, and then today we're taping the Sunday night. First, Collie gives up two runs, and then David Robertson gets slapped for a grand slam by Justin Smoke, who just absolutely owned the Yankees this weekend. Is there anyone in the first handful of games, whether it's those two teams or around the league, a player or a team that's really caught your eye? I think uh, I think Adam Eaton is going to come back from that injury that he had last year and just have tone pucks, tone pucks, fantasy draft pick, sleeper that's, pick there in the middle rounds. I was all about making sure I got my hands on Adam Eaton. Um, he's been filthy, man. All right, I mean, just filthy. The Reds could not get him out this uh, this weekend. So, you know, he caught my eye and this, you know, the, I think the twins might be for real, man. You know, uh, really? Berrios went out today and blanked Baltimore. Gibson had a real good outing yesterday. I, I feel like Baltimore's a, a pretty decent hitting club. So the, the, the twins caught my eye a little bit, uh, a little bit this weekend. So. I enjoyed those uh, those last two Yankee Blue Jays games, though. That's all star Justin. I'm sure Smoke you did. You. I don't want you to just refer to him as Justin Smoke, okay? When you refer to Justin Smoke, he needs to be referred to as All Star First Baseman Justin Smoke. He might be Yankee Killer Justin Smoke, just like David Ortiz, former Yankee Killer. Yo, one more Yankee thing, by the way. Fantasy baseball stutter dud. This year, sophomore slump, whatever you want to call it. Again, four games, too small of a sample size to freak out. But Aaron Judge did not look good early at all. You think the dude is due for a regression after last year? You better say no. Yeah, that ain't going to happen. I'm the part about me saying no. Um, I expect huge regressions from him and Cody Bellinger. Oh, you mean the guy I picked in the second round of my draft? Look, I froze him in another one, so I'm right there with you. I think so, though, man. I I I really do. I think um, I think big sluggers. You know, I I think you know contact hitters uh, are are less prone to you know to that sophomore slump, you know, than the masters are. So it, it would not surprise me uh, if Judge Bellinger or both, you know, had a modest dip in home runs. I, but I think where you'll see it is a significant dip in the um, in the averages to where, you know, I can't remember where they were last year. You know, it's somewhere like 260 to 280 maybe, that sort of thing. I think you can see those guys down around the the, uh, the 240 mark this year in, in year number two. 
Masters are this week. Think Tiger Woods could be in it this weekend? You looking forward to that? Oh, man. I am. I am fired up for the Masters. I am fired up for the Masters. <laughs> I am. That is going to be good, man. He's, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how he did uh, in in uh, Houston this weekend or even, if he was even in that field. He wasn't. He didn't play this week. Okay. Nope. Um, you know, I, I don't know if we're going to see what we saw uh, a couple weeks ago out of him. But, man, if we do, it'll be a ratings bonanza for uh, for CBS. At least I think it's CBS. Or are they putting that on fucking TBS, too? No. Still, I don't know. You know what? All the weekend's going to be on CBS. I know that much. I want Tucker to be in it, of course. And I want to see Phil Mickelson in it. And he's played well recently, too. So Rory just won a couple weeks ago. So I think the Masters is going to be awesome. I'm really pumped. Speaking of awesome, last thing, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you for WrestleMania 34 on Sunday? Come on now. They're up to 34 of those fucking things. 34. I've been to three of them, and I remember the first one. Yes. Oh, man. Well, I mean, if there's a... If, if you I don't can, know if, fucking if there's a shit zero, about wrestling. If there's a <laughs> zero, I, I, I would be there. Here's my my last WrestleMania. All right, was Bundy and Hogan in the steel cage? That was that was my last WrestleMania. Oh no, wait a minute. Didn't he? Did he? That was two. Then he slammed Andre in three. Right. That was three. Yes. Okay, that was it for me when he slammed Andre. Which, by the way, for as much as I don't know about wrestling and hate when you bring it up, my guess is that. Uh, that documentary on HBO about Andre the Giant is the oh, absolute yeah. bomb. I, <laughs> I mean, the absolute bomb. I can't wait for that, man. All right, you know what, dude? I'm done with you. You better start watching some wrestling. That is absolutely not going to happen. I will not watch wrestling, and I will not watch televised karaoke. All right, so. <laughs> All right, that's it for this episode. I want to thank one more time Greg Gabriel for coming on and breaking down these rookie quarterbacks in this draft. Unlike anyone else I've heard to date, it's it's certainly easier to take stock into what someone says when that someone has spent literally three decades inside the NFL team's draft room and they know the scouting business inside out. It was a great interview, and I learned a lot. I did. It was an education to me. So thanks to Greg for that. Also, big ups to Tone Pucks for coming on and doing our weekly chat. You guys should follow him on Twitter at Tone Pucks. It's worth that single mouse click. I'll give him that much. He's worth a mouse click. And speaking of a couple simple mouse clicks, if you haven't already, and God only knows why you wouldn't have already, stop farting around, go to Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to this future award-winning show. It's free. While you're there, do me the solid of leaving me a five-star review. Although, if I'm being completely honest with you, doesn't really do anything to help the cause. It's just an, a huge ego boost that I really thrive on. So do that. And also, you can follow me on Twitter at PatMoranTweets. I'll be back with another show on Thursday. We'll talk some sports, maybe a little pop culture. Definitely going to preview WrestleMania 34. This is where I wish I had a really cool catchphrase to sign off on the show, but I don't because I'm corny as hell. Whatever. See you guys on Thursday. Take care.
Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.